So, if you've watched Gladiator, as I did this past week, in that movie, uh, Maximus is the phenomenal general of the Roman army. He leads them to many, many, many victories, and upon his final victory, he wants to go home, but the new corrupt emperor uh, wants him to stay because he sees the power he has and he needs it. And Maximus turns him down. He's played by M Russell Crowe in the movie. And Maximus turns him down, which then incenses this new arrogant emperor. And so he has Maximus's family um, done away with. And he returns home, and, and he thinks that he's killed Maximus. He has Maximus assassinated and his family killed as well. And so he thinks that Maximus Meridius is no longer a problem to his power and his throne. And then it's, it's all this time later that Maximus is actually sold to be a gladiator, and he fights so well that the emperor says, I want to see this Spaniard. I want him to come fight in front of me. And so he sees this amazing fight, and he comes down, and he, and he says, after the fight's over, he says, I want to know who you are. What is your name? And he turns his back on the emperor. And he accuses him. He says, slave, how dare you turn your back on me? Turn around and tell me your name. If you've ever written or read Wild at Heart, he also talks about this story. That's what made me uh, watch this movie was reading it in Wild at Heart, a phenomenal book. He turns around and he says, slowly, this, this beautiful this cinematic moment, he takes his helmet off and he slowly turns around and looks him right in the face. He says, my name is Maximus Meridius. And he names, he's like the leader of the North Legion, blah, 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 blah. And he says, the father of a, of a murdered son, the husband of a murdered wife. And, uh, and he says, and I will have vengeance in this life or the next. And he stares him down. And you just see the emperor is like shaking in his boots because he knows, uh-oh, I am in deep trouble. Maximus is not dead, and now I'm fixing to be. And one thing, again, that I grabbed from the book Wild at Heart and, and then from that movie is that Maximus knows who he is the whole story. And it's who he, he knows who he is. He is the leader of this army. He was betrayed by someone he was supposed to trust. That person killed his family and he will have vengeance. He had focus that it led him to accomplish his mission. Now, I don't know if maybe I just maybe tried to make that illustration fit because it was a phenomenal movie. But as we begin moving into first Corinthians. The Corinthians are having an identity issue. Here's why. Uh, as we look at the text, first I, I want to read the text to you, and then I want to, to kind of over, overview with you a mistaken identity that the church in Corinth has. Again, so uh, what's powerful about Maximus is he knew who he was and he knew what he needed to do. Um, and so what we see is the Corinthians are a little bit messed up on who they are, and that's leading them to do things that they should not do. And so read with me in 1 Corinthians, and we're going to be in chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, as we begin this new sermon series. It says, Paul called as an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints, with all those in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both, theirs, both their Lord and ours. 
Grace to you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4, I always thank my God for you because of the grace of God given to you in Christ Jesus that you were enriched in Him in every way, in all speech and all knowledge. In this way, the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will also strengthen you to the end so that you will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. You were called by Him into fellowship with His Son, Jesus, with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I want to tell you a few things about Corinth, and then we're going to look at four takeaways in the text that we just read, okay? So an overview and then four takeaways from this introductory text. So a few things about uh, this is that the overarching theme I want us to see in this text is that our faith hinges on God's gift of Christ's work on the cross. That's kind of a mouthful. Uh, I tried to figure out how to word it better, but just go with me. Read it one more time. I think it'll make sense. Our faith hinges on God's gift of Christ's work on the cross. Nine explicit references to Jesus Christ in nine verses, and then two indirect references to him. He wants you to know that everything that the church in Corinth has is because God gifted it to them through Christ. Okay, so our, our faith hinges on God's gift of Christ's work on the cross. Now, about Corinth. Uh, on Paul's second missionary journey, Gage, oh wow, Gage is not there anymore. That's Lance. All right, yeah, throw that picture up there. Where did Gage go? Oh, that's embarrassing. <laughs> I was like, he's not here. He must have had to left. I knew he was going to leave this afternoon, but anyways... So as you look around here, uh, you see some of Paul's missionary journeys, okay? I'm going to be on this TV. You can look at this one if you want. Same picture. <clears throat> you have all of this area of Asia over here, okay? And then over here is where they had Achaia, Sparta, if you've seen 300. Again, not endorsing, just saying it was an epic movie. Um, and so you have Athens right here, and then you have Corinth over here. Now over in this way, if I believe right, I'm horrible at geography, was Italy. Somewhere over here is Italy. So um, Corinth was a Greek city-state that was unbelievably wealthy uh, because of its location. Okay, so you could come here and sail around if you wanted to, but also this was like a land bridge to get you to over here. So it was only four and a quarter miles, so 4.1 or 4.25 miles, I believe, from the port to the other port to get across the land bridge in Corinth. I believe it was called an isthmus. If I'm, we've talked, Lee's nodding his head because that's who helped me uh, confirm that earlier. So an isthmus, is, isthmus, whatever. There was the Olympic Games and then there was the isthmus. I've said this all week long and I haven't struggled with it, but... Oh my goodness, that's embarrassing. There was another type of Olympic Games that was named after that landmass, and I'm not going to say it anymore because I'm irritated now. But nonetheless, uh, Corinth was a very, very well-located city, and because of that, it was very wealthy. It was a Greek city-state, and... Um, 
So again, it was, it was wealthy because, man, that isthmus really messed me up. Because you could come there and go around or you could cross through. And so it was very important for trade routes, very important for them economically. Uh, again, it was a Greek state and it was destroyed by Lucius Mummius um, in 146 BC. Okay? After that, it literally sat pretty much vacant for 100 years until Julius Caesar refines it, refounded it. And so Julius Caesar, now a leader in Rome, says, okay, this city is very important to trade. It's very important to the economy. We're going to refound this city. Well, you can't just make a ton of very smart, well-to-do Romans move to a place that has been a dump for a hundred years. So what do you do? Well, if you're the Roman Empire, you have lots of slaves and conquered people. And so they repopulate Corinth with slaves and freed men. They always had an abundance of people that they had conquered and they didn't know what to do with them. And so these ones were very fortunate. Julius Caesar says, here you go. Here's a great city. Go make it happen again. Okay, And so uh, a lot of freedmen, a lot of skilled artisans and craft and skilled workers go, are, are displaced now and put in Corinth. Okay? And they begin operating jobs again. And then the wealthy people see that, oh my gosh, like that's back? Okay, cool. And so they then move. And so now you have this influx of, there's some wealthy people, but the majority of the population in Corinth was former slaves and freed men. And so this is a, an interesting dynamic. Also, <clears throat> for whatever reason, Julius Caesar did not set up like a very strong political uh, system there. And so it was very loosely political. And so what you developed was a fiercely independent attitude amongst the people of Second Corinth. Okay? And so uh, I can't think of a more Wyoming city of the ancient world. Uh, and so it was made up of hard workers, skilled laborers, and a handful of wealthy families. Uh, again, that makes me think of Wyoming. It's very uh, fiercely independent. That makes me think of Wyoming. And so I think that we're going to be able to relate a lot of this. Another thing that's really important for us to know is that this was a powerful Greek city that was then conquered by Rome. And so two of the most dominant religious and spiritual views of the ancient world are combined into one. There's a handful of Jews there, but predominantly it's pagans, either Roman or Greek. And then Paul comes with the gospel. And there is a great response to the gospel. The church of Corinth is then planted. He was there for 18 months. And so he spent a year and a half in Corinth, planting the church in Corinth. And then he leaves. And what happens is they begin to fall back to their pagan upbringing. Okay? Uh, there's lots of problems throughout Corinthians, but the biggest one, uh, that one of them is that the wealthy people and the poorer people, there's some issues there, we'll get to that towards the end of Corinthians, um, but the predominant issues, he corrects them 10 times, 10 of them are about their behavior, one of them is about their theology. And it made me think so much of, 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 of Wyoming and, and of people here is the faith that we have here is beautiful and so many members in our church, this is the first church they've ever been a member of. That is awesome. 
but that means you also don't have much of a history of faith. And that's why it's so important that we try and teach the Bible well. We have lots of discipleship. We have lots of community because, as is the case in Corinth, they had never been in church, never heard the gospel. They heard the gospel. They got saved by the gospel. They followed Jesus. But then when, when Paul left, there was some, some Satan work, some, some temptation that came in, and they began going back and forth, flip-flopping back to their former beliefs, uh, and those were at war with their Christian beliefs, okay? And so this is what's taking place. They received the gospel, they flourish, and then they slip back into this upbringing, and here was the biggest problem. They began to get a little cocky. Paul had taught them the gospel, but now they knew more than Paul the apostle. And so the reason he writes this letter, these are about the only nice words he says in this entire letter. Because he's going to give them 15 chapters of correction, 16 chapters of correction, because they are accusing him that he is not an apostle, he is inferior to them, and that they have a higher spirituality than Paul himself. So could you imagine Paul plants a church, spends a year and a half there, he leaves, and then there's some, some creeping back to your old ways, and then there's some leading people in the church, leading the rest of the church to dismiss him as the original founder of the church, and then therefore turn away from the gospel altogether. Paul is a desperate man as he writes 1 Corinthians. He's desperate because he wants them to stay the course but he knows that he's losing his authority and his influence in the church. So that sets the stage for the text that we're fixing to be in now. And so read with me again, verse 1 through 3. Paul called as an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Sosthenes our brother, to the church of God at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as Saints, with all those in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, knowing that context, as you read with that in mind, you will see that Paul, inspired by God, is absolutely setting them up for he's going to destroy them in an argument. <laughs> and, and he starts it off in the intro. Now, Paul, he, he's a Roman. And in this ancient time, there was a certain way that you began your letters. And so Paul, as a person of that time, God inspired him, but he also used Paul. And so Paul starts with a basic Greek opening, but he adds some flavor to it, just so the Corinthians would know. And he adds just enough that anyone in Corinth reading the letter would be able to pick up on what he's doing. He begins his instruction even in his greeting. Paul called as an apostle of God. <laughs> he starts out with his title. Sosthenes gets no mention. <laughs> he says, and Sosthenes our brother. <laughs> but, but Paul starts, he says, Paul called as an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will. He is letting them know it doesn't matter what you think of me. My authority does not come from me. It comes from God. And I am called by God. Or I am called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. He starts out right Immediately, and he says, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God at Corinth. When Paul usually starts letters, he says, to the church in Thessalonica, to the church in Philippi, to the church in Ephesus. 
But the Corinthians think that they're superior to all other churches because they have attained a level of spiritualness that Paul the apostle only wishes he had. And so Paul immediately says, Paul, an apostle called by the will of God, I'm writing to you the church of God in Corinth. Paul is wanting to remind them who is the owner of the church in Corinth. It is not the superior Corinthians. It is God himself. And so he says to the church of God in Corinth, those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus called as saints. And so one of the important things that I learned about this, what's, what's beautiful about prepping for a sermon is God reveals things to you, and it's, it's an amazing, uh, it, 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 it brings me joy that God's called me to be a preacher and teacher in the church. He's gifted me with that. So one of my favorite things is reading the text and God speaking and explaining things to me. Then it's really, really encouraging when you go grab a commentary from someone who's like got a PhD for their knowledge of a certain book in the Bible, and what you learned in the text lines up with that. That's an awesome feeling as a pastor to know that you weren't being heretical and way off point, okay? And so I've been reading in a commentary this week, prepping. I've been studying this. And so some of these things are just so awesome that I've learned. And so one of the things I learned from the commentary was when he says, sanctified by Christ Jesus, called as saints. That word has a meaning, and that meaning is that you've been called by God to follow him and act accordingly. And so Paul's saying, I'm writing to you. I am an apostle, and I'm writing to the church of God in Corinth, and I'm writing to you who have been called to live a different way. What he will begin in the rest of the book of Corinthians is that they're not living according to that way. And he's going to call them out on that. And so again, as you're a Corinthian and you're paying attention in church that morning when this letter is read, you're going, uh-oh, <laughs> he's being very nice, but I know what direction he's going. And right out of the gate, Paul is wanting them to know, and this, I should have said this when we started, that in Christ we are a family. The Corinthians believed they were the only ones important to God. And so Paul writes to them and he says, I, Paul, an apostle, write to you. It is God's church, not yours. You have been called to live a holy way. And now this is, this is where it becomes very explicit what Paul's doing. With all those in every place who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord, both their Lord and ours. In Christ we are a family. He is making in no uncertain terms. I hope you can see the rhetoric and the skills that he's using as he writes. To the church in Corinthians, you are equal with every church in every place who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus. He is letting them know now there's nothing special about the spirituality in Corinth. They are just the same as every other person who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that is the normal ending of an introduction. <clears throat> and so what's happening here is the Corinthians are getting uppity. The Corinthians, and we're fixing to get into this, they believed they had a special measure of the Spirit of God. 
And that's leading them to, to feel superior over their own apostle who founded the church. Later on in Corinthians, he says, you have many people who have taught you the gospel, but you have one father. And he says, I am, through the gospel, your father in the faith. How dare you disrespect me? I, I love this book. is going to be epic. And so, but he writes to them, and, and he's wanting to remind them that in Christ, we are a family. And again, later in Corinthians, he says, we are all members of one body. The hand cannot say to the foot, I have no need of you. And so what is happening in the church in Corinth is that they're saying to other people, I have no need of you. I'm good on my own. The problem here, all of you can be aware of a time where you had a, a classmate or a, or a sports a, a teammate, maybe a co-worker that needed to be brought down a rung or two. Anyone ever think of that? Well, that's what Paul is doing in this letter. Paul is, is bringing them down a notch or two. And so to these arrogant, cocky Corinthians, they're like, oh, Paul wrote us a letter, huh? Interesting. And then as they read that, the ones who are wise are going to go, uh-oh. <laughs> he hasn't even gotten mad yet, and he's already called us out. <laughs> he's like, uh, he's an apostle. God is the owner of the church in Corinth, not them. And they are no better than any other family member they have all throughout the, the land, all throughout in every place where people call on the name of the Lord. So one thing that we can learn from this <clears throat> is that in Christ we our family. So how do we apply that in 2023 in Barna and Wyoming? Well, my friend Ben Garcia, I, I'm, I love a quote that he says. He says, the, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. He always said that. I thought he was joking. He says it. He's a very modern guy, very hip, but he says it like he heard it when he grew up in an old school Southern Baptist church. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. That's what he always says. And I'm like, Ben, what does that mean? And he was like, dude, think about it. No matter who you are, what you've done, what status you have in this life, at the foot of the cross, when you come to Christ, asking him to forgive you of your sins, the ground is level. There's no one better in the kingdom of God than anyone. And so he says, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And so here's, here's how I want to take away from this in, in our context. It doesn't matter if you were given the Bible to you on a silver platter and you were saved at age six and you can't remember a time where you haven't been in church and you didn't know the Lord. And it doesn't matter if you came to Christ later in life and you had a crazy wild testimony. We have these problems in the church sometimes where we're like, well, I did, I, I, you know, I don't have a perfect testimony. I actually had to live a little before I got saved. And then you've got other people who are thinking, well, I, I never had to go off and party and do all these things, and I, I came to Christ early. And, and these, these foolish arguments that sometimes that the enemy brings into the church, because if we can't fight with ourselves, we're going to be very focused on the mission, right? And so Satan comes in and, and has these tempting thoughts, these, these uh, problems, these conflicts, this strife. And so what is beautiful about what Paul starts out with is he is saying, in Christ we are a family. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. There is no special Christian. There's no special Christian. I'm not better because I'm your pastor. You're not better because you were a founding member. You're not better because you were saved at seven. You're not better because you have a great testimony and people who know who you are and bar none. We come to level ground when we come to Christ. Our status, our jobs, our testimonies, 
all of us have in common. I was on my way to hell, but by Christ, now I know him. I've been reunited in a relationship with the Father, God the Father, and I'm on my way to heaven. That is the beautiful, equaling work of Christ, is that in Christ we are a family. One other takeaway I want to have for us is I want to say to you, Outfitter Church, you are those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. You are those who have been called as saints. What's beautiful about this passage is that they don't call themselves saints. Paul is saying, you have been called. And so what I want to say to you, Outfitter Church, God has called you to be different. And you're doing a phenomenal job at that. We are different because of what Christ has done in us. And what's beautiful about that, some of you sometimes worry with shame and and problems with your sins. What I want to encourage you is that you have been called to be holy by someone who is an authority outside yourself, and he has an authority all on his own. So when God speaks, it is so. God has spoken over you, Outfitter Church, that you are called to be holy, called to be sanctified by him. What a blessing that is for someone with that much power and authority to speak life over you. As we move on into verses 4 through 7, he says, I always thank my God for you because of the grace of God given to you in Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in him in every way, in all speech and all knowledge. In this way, the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the second thing that we see is that in Christ we are enriched. In Christ we are enriched. In Christ you're made better. In Christ we are better with him than without him. Now, you already knew that they are insulting Paul. They're calling him insufficient. They're refusing to acknowledge his authority as the planter of that church. And this is what he says to them? This makes me think of the journey of parenting I'm going through. I was raised, not, I mean, I was raised very well. My dad's right there, and he still has a belt on him, so I'm going to watch what I say. But whenever I had kids, I thought if I just was consistent and spanked when they were messed up, everything would be perfect. Interestingly enough, we had a very strong-willed girl and a very strong-willed but way sensitive boy, Annie. We don't, I don't even know what's Annie, but in the, in the Martin household now, I find myself disgusted with myself as my son or daughter will and run away from me and slam their door, and I'm like, <laughs> okay, all right. And what I'm learning is instead of just immediately chasing them down in there and getting after it, I walk. Not always. I pray. Correction is coming. But let me first reason. What's crazy is I found like when I start with that, it actually goes a whole lot better. Okay? It's very hard. Very hard to be. Uh, Lance's message uh, was about God being slow to anger. That's a, that's a That's a challenging text as a father, because I'm a horrible God. I would be a horrible God. But Paul is, is, before he gets into 16 chapters of correction, 
He starts with praise. This is incredible. I took a parenting lesson from this. I was like, man, my correction is going to have to come to certain behaviors in my kid's life. But what an awesome, incredible example Paul has when he has every right to just blast them from the start. He says, I, I always thank my God for you because of the grace that was given to you. And so he zooms out just a moment because he wants to focus on something. He wants to affirm what he can affirm. It's very similar when he's in Acts chapter 17 and he's, he's in Athens and there's tons of idols everywhere. He says to them, he says, I see in every way that you are religious. That's a good thing. It's very good. You're seeking out God. Right? Many of us would be like, you like pagan God worshipers, you heathens, blah, blah, blah. No, he, he affirms what he can affirm and then he will correct. And so right out of the gate, he says that we're a family he says, in Christ, we are enriched. Corinthians, look at what God has done among you. He says, you are enriched in, in every way. And then the two biggest areas of contention, their speech and their knowledge. They believe they had a more eloquent speech. Again, they're a Greek-Roman background. So having eloquence was very important. Paul came to them empty, broken, beaten, persecuted. Okay? And then uh, knowledge. It was very important in Greek philosophy to have a higher knowledge. And so they believed they were more eloquent than Paul. They believed they had a higher knowledge than Paul. And Paul was just a poor, persecuted, beaten up, broken church planter that came in. And we we're way past him now. That's crazy. That's actually what Paul compliments among them. He says, I'm, I'm saying that God has enriched you in every way, in all speech, and all knowledge. God has done good things for you. And in this way, he says, the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. What's the testimony of Christ? One of my favorite stories about that is, is Trent. I preached a sermon that said, Jesus will jack your life up. And, and that was whenever he gave his life to Christ, was after that sermon. And he says, Jesus has jacked my life up. So the testimony of Christ is that if Christ gets a hold of you, you will be changed. And so the gospel came to the Corinthians, and Paul is saying the testimony of Christ was confirmed among you. God did something so powerful in your lives that the testimony about who he is proved true. Corinthians, I thank God for you. I thank God for all he's done to make you holy. I thank God for the gifts he's given you. He says, so that you don't lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, in Christ we are enriched. They've been given everything. An illustration of that was really cool. I was at our firefighter meeting on Wednesday this past week. And uh, in that meeting, I had a conversation with one of the firefighters who knows a member in our church. And I said, yeah, that's been a crazy life change, isn't it? And he was like, yeah, yeah, it has. And so he knows one of our members that's grown up here and was saved a year or two ago. And he's a totally different man now. And so the testimony of Christ is confirmed. And so when you hear about someone coming to Jesus, sometimes what you think is, oh, now they're just a Bible thumper. They're rude. They don't talk to me anymore. They're too good for me. Uh, that's not what we want. What we want is someone who's gone from death to life, someone who used to live one way, but now because of Jesus lives a totally different way. Someone said a quote this morning as we were doing setup. For your friends, 
for your friends that don't have Christ live in such a way that it makes them want Christ. I don't know, Trent told it to me and now I forgot what it was, but that would have been a really good story had I remembered it accurately. But an application of this is that in Christ we are enriched. We are given what we need to follow him. Uh, A couple years ago I I drew an awesome elk tag um, just south of the Tetons. And we go to hike in. I'm with two guys. One's like a hunting guide. One is a, a, a native Wyoming guy. He grew up in these mountains. And both of them are six foot two. And their legs are as tall as I am. And so we just are just traipsing along through the snow. And I'm dying. And we finally get uh, to where we see this elk. And it's, it's a long ways off. We're planting our stock. And we start to get ready. We get within 350 yards. A stupid thing moves into the trees. And he's like, well, you can't shoot him from here. We might as well eat some food before we start talk more. And so we're sitting there, and this guy named Nathan Vialba, he, uh, actually, I think one of the guys that's going on that, who was on that trip with me is actually watching this live stream right now, so I hope that he's laughing. Um, but my buddy has like a water bottle and a Nature Valley bar in his backpack. I, I knew who I was hiking with, so I brought very little water, and I brought very little of anything else because I didn't want to have to like be way behind them in hiking. And so this one guy, Nathan, he's just like absolutely in perfect physical physique. He has this 60 pound pack and we don't have any meat in it. He's just got stuff. And so Nathan sits down he's like, hey guys, here's my stove. And he pulls out a stove and he's like, you guys want a coffee? Yeah, I got a coffee. Hey guys, you want a, you want a mountain house meal? I got a mountain house meal. And he just starts bringing out all this stuff. And I'm like, oh, I love you. I love you. And and the other guy's like, I don't need any of that stuff. And he's like, come on, you can eat it. And he was like, I have what I need. And he was like, just shut up and eat the food. And um, ultimately, later on throughout the day, Brian kept saying to Nathan, uh, I don't need to carry all that stuff. And he says, it's guys like me that let guys like you exist. If things went bad, you would need what's in my pack. That's what he said. And uh, I wasn't arguing because I was just glad that he kept giving me food and coffee out of his backpack. I love that backpack. <clears throat> In, in our walk with Christ, that backpack is carried by Christ. By my, I literally ran out of water on our hike back. I didn't get the elk. Stupid. <clears throat> on our walk back, I ran out of water, and my hamstring and quads were locking up so bad. I had to drink everyone else's water uh, that they had brought. And so that's what Christ is like. When we don't have what it takes, when we come to Christ— He has enough. And so Paul is telling the Corinthians, man, you've been gifted. You do have beautiful speech now. You know so much now in Christ. You've been given everything you need. Corinthians, I praise God for you. It's a pretty powerful start. And then we're going to jump into the same similar thing. But the third thing that we're going to see is in verse 8. He says, he will also strengthen you to the end so that you will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I I have to say this. Um, I told Lance, I said, there's no way I can cover everything that I need to cover. So here's what you should probably talk about in midweek. But I have to talk about this. They were so superior that they didn't believe the resurrection was going to happen anymore because they believed they were already resurrected. Now, they knew there was something about these sprained ankles that could still happen. They needed new bodies, but spiritually, they were heavenly. This is very arrogant people, by the way. <laughs> so, um, 
So Paul is very clear when he says, two times, he just did it back to back. He says, you don't lack any, he's like, you don't lack any spiritual gift. And they're like, yeah, we know. As you eagerly await the coming of our Lord Jesus. Then they're like, oh, okay, okay. He's saying that we're not heavenly yet. Then he says, and you'll also be strengthened to the end so that you will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus. See, they already think that they're blameless. And he's saying, no, you're not. But you will be when Christ comes by Christ. And so what we see in, this, in verse 8 is that in Christ we will finish the race. In Christ we will finish the race. Again, he is, he's encouraging them, but he's also correcting them. And he's bringing them back. You're not special. You're not heavenly. You're on your way, but you're not there yet. This is what he's wanting the Corinthians to see. But what a beautiful hope for us is that in Christ we will be strengthened until that day. Uh, there's, there's a father and son duo, Jeff and Johnny Agar. Johnny has cerebral palsy. If you've ever been on YouTube and watched motivational videos, you've had to have found this. Jeff and Johnny, Jeff the father, um, they have completed over 200 races together. And their greatest accomplishment of all was when they did an Ironman. I don't know if you know what an Ironman is, but I believe, if I can remember right, it's a two-mile swim. It is a marathon, and then like a hundred-mile bike ride. Any, any Ironmaners in here? Something similar to that. You get the picture. It's really stinking hard, even if you're in perfect physical condition. Jeff did the Ironman with his son attached to him. He swam with his son in a life raft attached to him. Swam two miles. Then they get out and they run a marathon, and his son is in uh, effectively a, a large stroller. And then his son sits in the sidecar as he completes the race. And what's so beautiful, and I'm getting, getting goosebumps now, when they cross the finish line, the son is just pumping, and he's hyped because of what he did through his father. Church, that is the confidence you should have for making it to the end. You say, I don't know if I can make it through this season. I don't know if I can make it. Say, good thing you're not the one running the ship. Good thing you are attached to someone who has all power, all authority, and he's going to keep you to the end. Just as this son with cerebral palsy could never on his own complete those races, but attached to the Father. Amen. Attached to the Father. We will finish the race. What a glorious hope we have in Christ. Again, he's speaking to the Corinthians, reminding them, you aren't done yet. <laughs> you already have part of heaven in you, but you're not yet there. Keep going. But again, what a word of encouragement to us and to anyone in a season where they feel like the spiritual legs of their souls need to stop. 
and they feel like the spiritual back that they have of their faith is about to crumble under the weight of pressure, I want to remind you, Jesus says, come to me and take upon my yoke. That yoke was to go over two oxen, and he is in the other side. And so when Christ calls you to follow him, you never bear the weight alone. Therefore, you cannot be crushed. Keep singing of the goodness of God in the season that you're in, in the pain that you're in, in the darkness that you feel, because in Christ we will finish the race. The last thing we see is in verse 9. Paul says, God is faithful. You were called by him into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I remember whenever I was a kid, my brother's four years older than me. His name's Josh. My brother is the coolest person on the face of the earth. I love my brother so much. Um, Getting off of social media has been the hardest thing because my brother and I send about 30 memes back and forth to each other every single day. Uh, I think he's having withdrawals of sending me some because he keeps texting them to me. And so I love my brother, but he didn't always really want me to be around. Now we love spending time together, but I was the annoying kid brother. All I ever wanted was to be cool enough to hang out with my brother and his friends. He, he would let me from time to time, but usually he didn't. And then there came a time where the, the baseball team that he played for called the Knockouts asked me to be the bat boy for their baseball team. And that meant I got a jersey, I got a hat that said BB on the back, bat boy, and I got to sit in the dugout with my brother and a lot of his friends. Coolest moment ever. I think I learned more cuss words that summer than any other time in my life. <laughs> so we've, we've laughed as a family many times as to why my parents let that happen. I was with a bunch of 18-year-old seniors in high school and a summer baseball league. Horrible idea. Uh, and so, but I was finally with my brother and his friends. And then the pinnacle of all of this is in one of those summer leagues, I didn't just get to be the bat boy. They were down a player and I got to play. So I was an eighth grader playing in a high school summer league, and I got a hit, and if I wouldn't have choked with pressure, I would have turned a double play with my brother. But they hit the ball to me, and I I just chunked it, and it made my brother come off second base, and he he was like, what are you doing? You screwed it up. And I was like, that's all right. I'm just happy I'm out here with you, man. (laughs) That's all I ever wanted was to have that friendship with my brother and his friends. I wanted to be in. Friends, I don't know how you feel, but the invitation of salvation is an invitation to be in with God. It's an invitation not just to serve him, but to be his friend. In Jesus' life, he says, no longer are you my disciples, but I have called you friend. And so he says, I want, I want you to know me. I don't want you just to serve me. I want you to enjoy me. 
I want you. How many of you ever, you've noticed that in your marriage? Sometimes in your marriage, you become more roommates than you are friends. And no one in that type of a marriage is happy. And so what is missing? What's missing is that intimacy. What's missing is the communication. What's missing is the fellowship. And in Christ, we have fellowship with God. That's what Paul is saying to the church in Corinth. Is he is saying, church, you're missing the mark. You've received the gospel, and now you've set yourself up on this pedestal of how holy you are and how good you are, but you've forgotten that the whole purpose is not for you to be special. Or, or no more. It's so that you can know, enjoy, and fellowship with God. I want to ask you how many of you truly enjoy a deeply connected and intimate relationship with God? I read something these past couple of weeks where he says most of people in the church are just tired and weary servants. Salvation is not an invitation to kill yourself serving God, but an invitation to know God and serve Him in a deeply connected relationship. John Mark Comer wrote a book called Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. It's been wrecking my life. But he says that he's talking about this, the, the way of Jesus and following Jesus intimately. And he says that uh, whenever he gets done speaking, most people say, yeah, you don't understand. I, I'm a mother with young kids. You don't understand. I, I own my own company. You don't understand. I don't have time for that. And he says, he, he gives them two questions. He says, okay, really, so how much time do you watch TV in a day? How much time do you spend on social media? How much time do you spend on Amazon shopping? And he says, most people, he says, take a, take a time log of your week. Take a time log of your week and then come back to me and let me know how busy you really are. He says, most people come back going, I had no clue how much time I was wasting. He says, yeah, go be closer to the Lord. He says, then some people actually prove to me that they don't have time to read the Bible. And I say to those people, well, then you're just simply too busy to follow Jesus. And so guys, if you feel distant from the Lord, he's the perfect one in the relationship. It's your problem. But I don't, some of you are like, yeah, I know, I suck, I'm the worst Christian in the world. Thanks a lot, pastor. Christ is calling you to come spend time with him. He's saying, hey, won't you come sit down? I want to have dinner with you. I want to catch up. Hey, in the morning, I'd love to meet up with you and have coffee. Love to talk with you. Hey, I've got something I'd love for you to read. It's something I feel like would be really beneficial to your life. You mind taking a few minutes to read this letter I wrote to you? It's not so much about do's and don'ts. It's about knowing God, my, I don't have to, my wife doesn't have a list of how to not load the dishwasher. I have just been married to her long enough. I know how she hates the dishwasher being loaded. It's not about the rules. There are rules, don't get me wrong. But it's a, if you have a healthy relationship with Christ, you'll see the benefits of that. I, 
I just want to share a personal testimony. I've been going through several things, working through slowing down. Uh, I don't like to slow down. I don't like to stop and think. I like to just keep going. I like to talk. I like to move. Um, we've been making some changes lately, and we had breakfast uh, at my office the other day. The kids do a homeschool program uh, that once a week meets at the church that I office out of. And so I get to my office, the kids show up, and we, we come in and we have breakfast. And my phone is, is nowhere near me. I'm not on Facebook. And, uh, and I'm just sitting there. And uh, my daughter's got yogurt all over herself. She's sitting on the floor. So I was like, this is miserable. I'm gonna, I'll just go ahead and, and hold you. And I'm feeding her. And my kids are riding all over my whiteboard. And they're spilling crumbs all over the floor. It's actually truly a miserable moment of my life. But um, Ashley's like moving around. She's like packing stuff because the kids got to get ready. She's changing them out of their snow boots to the real boots and all this stuff. And, and, and I'm just sitting there. And I literally could almost started crying of how happy I was. Because for the first time in many, many years, I'm finally slowing down. I'm finally enjoying. And my word for the year is to be present. I want to be present where I'm at. And so usually I'm on my phone, or I'm, while the kids were there, I'd be trying to act like I'm working hard so I can make my wife think that I'm working hard when I'm at my office. And I just sat there and I just fed yogurt to my kid. Watched my kids make crumbs everywhere, all over my office. Nola kept jumping every single time to go get them. Nola, sit down! But I just sat there and I thought, man, God, you're good. See, I don't usually catch those moments. Usually when I say goodbyes to people, we've had several friends leave the state, and I don't even realize that they're gone until after we've already said goodbye. And I was just so busy, I completely missed out on actually getting to have a good goodbye with them. Some of us are far too busy to be intimate with God, and that needs to change. In Christ, we have fellowship with God. Again, salvation is not an invitation to servanthood only. Boy, somebody is mad back there. (laughs) Amen. Uh, You guys pray for JJ and Jennifer. It's their first Sunday back there. Um, Well, she's getting it. She is getting it. Um, Salvation is not an invitation to servanthood only. (laughs) Yeah, her mom about to jack her up. (laughs) She's going to invite her to change too. Um, It is an invitation not just to servanthood, but it is an invitation to know and enjoy God. So slow down, church. We are all far too busy, and we need to make some changes about that. Again, if you don't feel deeply connected to God, it is your fault, not his. And it's not about do's and don'ts. It's about slowing down to recognize that in Christ we're a family. In Christ we are enriched. In Christ we will finish the race. And in Christ we have fellowship with God. I'm going to invite Ashley and Julianne to come back up as I close. In every text of Scripture... We want to find what is the Christ connection. Uh, the Christ connection, a.k.a. the appeal to someone who doesn't know Christ as their Savior. And I was thinking, like, all right, Lord, uh, my sermon's done. Well, I don't have a Christ connection. <laughs> uh, maybe I missed it somewhere along there, God. I don't know where my invitation's going to come from, Lord. And then it popped into my head, and I felt like the Lord gave it to me. The Christ connection is that none of these beautiful promises 
are yours without Christ. If you recognize Christ was referenced nine times, and the overall thing was that our faith hinges on God's gift of Christ's work on the cross. And so what did Christ do on the cross? On the cross, Christ, who was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, offered himself willingly for the sins of the world. Yeah, your decision to be disgusting at times, your decision to use people for your own benefit, your decisions to sin against a good God who created you, who loves you, who calls you to relationship, your decisions to sin, that's why Christ had to be brutally murdered on the cross, and he did it willingly. It's my sins too. I'm not just throwing shade at you. I have to think, oh my gosh, Christ was on the cross for me to do that. Why did I do that? And so Christ willingly went on the cross. He suffered and bled. And as we read in the scripture reading, we are healed by his wounds. And Christ died on the cross. He was buried. And three days later, he rose from the grave. I don't know about you. There's a lot of words in the world, a lot of leaders in the world, a lot of religions in the world. All the other religions effectively say, here's the things to do to get to God. But in Christianity, God says, you could never get to me. So I will come to you. And he offers us the gift of Christ on the cross. An innocent man, the God-man, died for you and for me. And he rose from the dead. Of all the other religions, no one's ever rose from the dead. I'm going to follow that guy. And he's not calling you to just be some useless servant that doesn't matter. He says, I want you to be my friend. I want you to know me. I want you to enjoy me. And then I want you to tell others about me. So if you're here today, maybe today you would say, yeah, I need that. I need that. I need need to respond to the invitation that Christ is offering to me to come and to know him and to enjoy him and to walk in his ways. I'm going to ask with all heads bowed and eyes closed, if that's you, I'm going to say a prayer. Nothing fancy about that prayer. It's just declaring truths. And I'm going to declare some truths that you're going to deny yourself and follow Jesus, that you're going to respond to the invitation to turn away from your sins and follow him. So if that's you, I'm going to encourage you to pray with me. Pray now. God, I need you. I believe you sent Jesus to die for my sins. I couldn't pay for my sins. I couldn't earn my way to heaven. But Jesus did it for me. I'm responding to your invitation to be part of your family, to be enriched, to finish the race, and to have fellowship with you, God. Forgive my sins. I surrender my life to you. I am yours. With heads bowed and eyes closed, if you prayed that, I'm going I'm to encourage you to be bold. Fill out that card that's in your seat. 
or come talk to me after service. What a glorious, glorious decision that is, but it's the beginning of a great journey, and we want to accompany you on that journey. Let me pray for our church. Father, we love you. We need you. Oh, I wish that it was only the church in Corinth that needed correction, but Lord, even at times, so do I, and so do we. So God, as we hear your word to the church in Corinth over the next several months, God, would you have Outfitter Church to respond as well. And where we are mistaken, where we are out of line, help us, Lord, to repent and walk with you. In Jesus' name.